Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to September's edition of Recharge, the podcast by Battery Materials Review. In a sec, we'll have a recap of all the month's key news with Cormac O'Lara, MD of Electrios Energy, and then we'll move on to the Q&A sent in by listeners. But first of all, I'd just like to thank this issue's sponsors, ICC Sino. ICC Sino is a professional industry research and consulting company in China, which is specialized in the lithium battery market research and data analysis. Check out their services at iccsino.com. So moving on now, and I am delighted to welcome Cormac. Hi, Cormac. Hi, Matt. Feels like it's been a while since I've done this. Maybe it's because it's the end of the summer, uh, start of the yeah. school year. It just feels like uh, back to school again. Back to school, definitely. And uh, we might actually meet in person for the first time uh, later this month. Yeah, I'll be the one carrying the red rose. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, brilliant. Well, I look forward to that. Okay, so red roses aside, let's talk about some of the news flow this month. And I think probably one of the the things that's really um, sort of caught the market's imagination is the power shortages in China and how those have impacted sort of lithium supply and lithium prices. Any sort of news on, on that side of things? Heat waves dissipated. Number of reasons for the power containments, and it really has uh, affected the ability of converters, really, especially the lithium carbonate converters. To um, some were shut down periods of the month, some were shut down for the whole month, and on top of you know the other factors of access to uh, raw materials such as spodumene, it really took a toll on the market, and, and now we're seeing high prices for lithium carbonate again, which is. Mm. Uh, and a lot of this issue is to do not so much with sort of demand for power, but more the fact that a lot of the power in, for instance, Sichuan province comes from hydropower. And because of the low rainfall, that's been Im- impacted. Is that correct? Well, uh, three gorges as well. Yeah. So there's been a, over the summer, it's been a real lack of rainfall. And we've had, of course, some in the south when the yeah, typhoons have moved through. But yeah, Sichuan province, quite low. And um, I remember, uh, and this is probably rubbish, but I'll float it to you anyway. I remember ahead of the Olympics, I thought that the Chinese government was able to seed to seed rainfall by by sticking maybe this is rubbish, but anyway, rockets up into the atmosphere. Have they been able to do that again? Or I believe there have been attempts. Yes, I believe it's been occurring. It's a big area of interest for the uh, for the Chinese actually, and they've been at it for many years as well as a number of other countries, but uh, uncertain about the success rates, what is natural rainfall and what's by cloud seeding. But um, something I'm sure that uh, will uh, improve as, uh, as time goes on. But, but for the time being, we're not really sort of seeing a, a massive recovery in the sort of hydroelectric power production in China. Is, is, is that correct? If you're talking about a new ex- expansion, it's very limited in, in China. No, no I mean, yeah, in, yeah. in terms of, the ability to supply power to these uh, conversion plants? From what I heard this month, it is still relatively low and companies are still shutting down uh, a day or two a week. So that could be, you know, that could be impactive in, on pricing for, for a couple of months at least. 
Well, some of these converters also had problems with accessing spodumene anyway. Uh, and it's really, you know, the channels at one stage, and he, uh, there was many, many converters, almost in a mom, mom and pop shop kind of kind of format. And uh, I think we'll see the number drop drastically at, at the end of 2022. And it's the converters with access to material, contracts for material, and who aren't uh, exposed to the market. To such an extent, will will be long lasting. That's great. And um, a fair amount happening in, in China battery land this month as well. Some, some interesting announcements. A lot of technology announcements this month. Yeah. And factory announcements as well. A number of large announcements with CATL, BYD again. Not a month goes by without uh, the big two naming either a new EV factory for BYD, new pack factory, or new uh, Fin Dreams. And now I see uh, yeah, BYD are. Uh, integrating a Fin Dreams product, which is the blade type battery into energy storage. So that's just going to be quite interesting to see how that goes. Asphalt, uh, an announcement from Asphalt on technology? Well, it's the uh, Cobalt Free and the, uh, the new plant in Germany they're planning. Tech-wise, they have the pouch Cobalt Free production line up and running in production. So we'll expect to see uh, greater gains every month on the gigawatt hours produced from asphalt. And I think the interesting data on the EV side this month, which has actually been building for a couple of months, is the huge market leadership that we've seen from BYD, absolutely wiping the floor with, with Tesla in China over the last couple of months. And I think something like, what was it, six or seven models in the top 10? selling models for this month from BYD? Yeah, yeah. BVs and PHEVs, you know, they made the investment in PHEVs a number of years ago, three, four years ago now, and it's really paying off in sales. It's, it's a big segment of the uh, electric vehicle market in China, less than uh, PEVs, but BYD have uh, identified uh, hybrids as a uh, growing market in China and a market that they are more or less the main supplier. Mm, mm. Okay. And uh, just quite an interesting um, news flow item that, that sort of came out towards the end of the month, maybe the beginning of this month, about BMW now adopting, signing a deal with a Chinese battery maker for cylindrical cells, which seems to be rather jumping outside the sort of general trend because cylindrical cells is a sort of almost a declining breed outside China, isn't it? Outside China? Well, well, well globally. But uh, obviously, it has its highest market share outside China. But certainly, the market shares of cylindricals been yeah. uh, been falling substantially over the last couple of yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. Well, well. So, you know, Tesla wholly committed to cylindrical cells and have improved cylindrical cells from the twenty one seven hundred to the forty six eighty. That's outside yeah. China, isn't it? They're made in China. Cars use prismatic cells. They still use LG twenty one seven hundreds for above standard range. And even in the US as well, I believe, 21700 uh, LG as well, when needed. So that's for the premium vehicles, but the mass market ones are using prismatic cells. Yeah, that's the announcement. Uh, I'm sure you can still get standard with um, cylindrical cells. But in China, the standard range is the CATL prismatic cell. But uh, BMW, you know, they do have a mass market, uh, somewhat mass market uh, EV, that uh, small BMW i, but Yes, I, I yeah, suppose it's fair to say not not really a mass market vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty mass market in Germany, but yeah, it's a there's been a big swing towards uh, cylindrical cells since 460 announcement. 
almost all the major battery makers are looking at cylindrical cells now. LG, Samsung, obviously Panasonic are, are, are cylindrical cell manufacturers. Uh, and then the companies that uh, BMW have signed agreements with have large cylindrical formats in production. You know, the reasons for moving to, for large cylindrical are, are well known now as quick charging, high voltage, or sorry, high, high energy, and um, can be integrated with cell to chassis. But um, again, it's a little bit of uh, obviously following Tesla, wow. who is a number of years ahead of the competition still. But there's been a big swing back in the market for cylindrical, not a cylindrical sentiment rather than uh, in vehicles at the moment. But uh, yeah. the alternative is, so we're never going to have prismatic, I don't want to say never, but in a premium segment where you want high energy, quick charging, you want uh, long range. Um, you really have pouch and some manufacturers aren't com- uh, comfortable with pouch or you're going to have large format cylindrical. And I guess sort of swimming back to EV sales, I think one of the, the big data points that stood out for me this month is from Europe, where year-to-date EV sales actually went negative for the first time in a long time. And it's not, not a major negative, it's down 0.2% or something, but um, on a year-on-year basis. But that's starting to be a data point we need to keep an eye on. I'm you know, not too worried about global EV sales. China is the biggest market and it's still growing very, very rapidly, 100% year on year and moving into the strongest period. But certainly the fact that, that Europe is slowing and potentially could go more negative uh, is going to be a little bit of a drag on the market, do you think? Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, sales numbers are a little uh, disappointing to to get to my goal of 10 million EV sales for uh, 2022. So um, yeah, it's not really uh, holding up its end of the uh, of the bargain, so to speak. Mm. Um, In Europe, it's very much, you know, the, the the consumer is sort of sitting out of the market, really waiting to see whether <laughs> they can afford to keep food on the table as opposed to sort of buying EVs. But actually, one of the things that that, that stood out for me in the news flow in in August, which um, was something that we'd also reported on earlier in the summer, is this French EV leasing scheme. And basically, the French government is is planning to introduce this EV leasing scheme to allow low-income families to lease electric vehicles for like a discounted level. So they're talking about something like 100 euros a month, which is actually less than it takes to, to fill up a an ICE in Europe at the moment. And I mean, potentially that could be a really, a really positive scheme for the take up of EVs in Europe, particularly if it's adopted by other governments. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a great initiative. The automotive market is changing. It's not going to be the same market. We've already seen um, the growth of car sharing and, um, and as it's been around for many years and um, quite big in the US growing in China, and now see governments partaking also, will just uh, provide greater access to the community in general, to electric vehicles. Again, less vehicles required per household. So it could really could really open up the uh, electric vehicle landscape to even more consumers. Uh, I, I mean, I, to tell you the truth, I, I, I like this as an approach because for, for starters, it's obviously going to uh, focus on mass market, smaller vehicles. They're not going to subsidize um, the EV equivalent of gas guzzlers, what do you call them, lithium guzzlers? I don't know. 
so you know for me this is this is a nicer way than going out and sort of subsidizing willy-nilly across the market and obviously you know the the big issue with with evs is their huge upfront cost and you know whereas auto leasing is very much accepted in some markets like the us it's not common at this point in um in Europe. So it, it does open up the potential for this to be a really, a really strong part of the market for EVs. Yeah, I can see companies doing it for employees. You know, there's many, many ways you could uh, integrate this in, in, into the uh, into Europe, US. China's a little different in the market. It depends on a number of factors, you know, public transport infrastructure. So in China, your Shanghai driving license basically means you can't drive anywhere outside Shanghai. For that reason, you need high-speed trains. So I think in Europe, for sure, lesser extent in China, car sharing, electric vehicle car sharing is the way to go. So moving on, and, and I think, you know, we've reported a fair amount on the Inflation Reduction Act over the last sort of three or four weeks. Very positive act from the point of view of electric vehicles and the electric vehicle supply chain. A couple of naysayers coming out of the woodwork now. So you've, you've got a, a number of potential EV makers in the US complaining about how the app potentially uh, rules out all existing EVs that are sold in the US. And then you've got both Europe and Korea complaining about it from a, from a trading point of view. What are your views on that? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, really introduced uh, strict conditions for battery cells and cell material sourcing up to 2024 and beyond. And yeah, I don't mind $100,000 EVs missing out on tax credits. You know, these guys shouldn't be getting them really. But having said that, Tesla uh, and their initial customer base did a lot to push the electric vehicle industry to show that it could stand on its feet and there was demand. Uh, but now with the uh, integration numbers we're forecasting, we're going to see over the next decade, we have to move beyond the Silicon Valley tech company buyers to real mass market. Yeah. And I mean, you can kind of understand where the Europeans to some extent and the Koreans are coming from, more, more the Koreans. But at the end of the day, you know, there are a number of Korean companies with major supply chain announcements in the US. And I think what the Americans are just saying is, look, if you, if you want access to our market, you've got to put the, you know, the processing capacity, the building capacity in the US. And I think it's quite hypocritical of the EU to complain about this because they've effectively come out with their own version of this bill about sort of 18 months ago. So um, I would tend to look at it as an opportunity rather than a burden. I think they came at it in two different angles. The US is supply chain security, but leaving it open to free trade partners and friendly countries. I think they use some strange terminology in the IRA, but uh, you know we all know that it's basically to be less reliant on China, yeah. where the EU doesn't come out. And even the EU just introduced uh, our leaked a forced labor type document this week. And it doesn't, it just talks in general terms of forced labor. It doesn't mention any country in particular, but in the IRA, it's basically China in every line. And even the Koreans support source of majority of their raw materials from China. But, you know, they'll have... Their cell manufacturing already, uh, in some cases with LG, exists in, in, in US. SK Innovation just built a factory. Mm. So they'll qualify for a certain amount of, of, of those tax credits. And, um, and also the, the cathode producers going over there as well. So, you know, yeah. Chemicals and announcing a deal with GM and 
you know, that yeah. there's there's investment happening in the US over time. I think the Americans are just saying, look, invest more, invest it quicker. And you can kind of understand that. And I think from the EU point of view, I mean, maybe they're upset that they've been left out of the, um, in inverted commas, domestic uh, supply chain, uh, as um, explained by the US to include sort of Canada, Australia, and, and the UK. Of course, you know, given that the Europeans haven't invested anything in their upstream supply chain up till now. Maybe it's not a surprise that yeah. they haven't been included in the uh, in the domestic supply chain as defined by the US. And also EV sales, right? Imports from Europe, you won't be able to basically import premium luxury cars from yeah. Germany into in, into US beyond 2024. I think that's a, that's a key thing. And, and I mean, just coming back to that, the supply chain and board outlines this month that it regards one of the biggest risks to the EV event being the red tape in Europe and the US, particularly as regards to the upper part of that supply chain. And we did a, a big study on some of the issues facing facing Europe in this month's issue of the review. And I think one of the most telling comparisons was a comparison between Core Lithium, which is an Australian lithium developer, which uh, defined its first resource around the end of 2017, beginning of 2018, and is due to be in production at the end of this year. And Savannah Resources, which is a Portuguese lithium developer, which again defined its first resource around about the end of 2017, beginning of 2018, and is stuck in environmental legislation planning hell in Portugal, where they've just added in another layer of environmental assessment. And it it really emphasizes the huge gulf in planning legislation between resources-friendly countries and Europe and, uh, you know, highlights how difficult it is going to be to establish a battery supply chain in Europe when there isn't political support for the mining industry. Yeah, that was a very interesting side-by-side comparison really highlights the um, difficulties uh, for anybody setting up, especially for lithium projects in in Europe, Canada, Australia, much more lithium are mining friendly uh, nations who know how to process projects, get the environmental, the licensing all done in reasonable time and uh, and up in production. You know, it's and, Australia. And also yeah. importantly, with environmental controls in place. I mean, you know, we're not talking about really dirty projects here. We're talking about projects where the environmental situation is is analyzed and it's planned out in advance and it's it's tightly controlled. And you know, these are a lot of the pushback issues that we get when it comes to developing mining projects in, in Europe and in the EU in particular. Yeah, and you know, Australia, main reason, a lot less populated, a lot of less objections in WA, Western Australia. Yeah, that's for certain. <laughs> this one's actually in the Northern Territory, but uh, okay. I take your point about population density. I think that's, that's a core, core issue. So let's uh, make that the end of the week's news roundup. And as we highlighted in the, um, the previous regular edition anyway. To celebrate our 40th edition of the monthly podcast, we asked you, our listeners, to send in any questions they'd like us to answer. Thanks to everybody who sent a question or or, or some of you questions in. We got a lot more than we can handle just now, but we picked out some of the best ones 
So, um, yeah, without further ado, Cormac, do you want to kick off? Uh, sure. Tell us who, whose question it was and then... Uh, uh, okay, got one in from uh, Landon Oaks. Uh, I think this is addressed to you, Matt. What direct lithium extraction technologies are you most excited about? To tell you the truth, I, I don't actually differentiate between uh, which technologies I'm most excited about. I mean, the issue is that this is, a, this is a, at the moment, a non-commercially proven technology. And I'm just waiting until it's commercially proven. So for, from my point of view, DLE is a binary solution set. It works or it don't work. And I'm waiting to see an example of DLE working on a commercial basis. And we haven't seen that yet in the lithium industry. And I'm I'm sitting here with my fingers and toes crossed, hoping that something comes through. And I think the other thing to be aware of with, when it comes to DLE technologies is that brine ore bodies are different. They have different concentrations of different minerals within them, different elements within them, and that can impact different DLE technologies. So one DLE technology might work perfectly for one ore body. It might be an abject failure for another ore body. So I don't think it's possible to differentiate between DLE technologies on a broad industry basis, but we are still waiting for a DLE technology to be proven on a commercial tonnage basis. And from my point of view, I'm excited about DLE because obviously it would bring a whole bunch of what are sub-economic resources into development viability going forward. But as an investor and as somebody who's looked at the industry for a long time, I've seen a lot of technologies that look really exciting come to the industry, look brilliant in a lab and not succeed on a commercial basis. So, so from my point of view, I want to see the proof in the pudding before I'm going to get really excited about DLE. Definitely agree with you that each project is going to have its own specific DLE technology that works for that project. So this one comes from, from Glenn Whitehead. I'm going to jump in on this one. Why does lithium iron remain the dominant technology for BESS? It doesn't seem well suited to this application, given its limited lifespan and degrading performance. Will sustained high lithium prices bring another technology forward as the dominant technology for BESS? So that's stationary energy storage. Battery energy storage systems, BESS, yeah. We're already seeing it, right? China is a, a, the government is uh, making opening the door for sodium ion now to take up certain uh, you know there's many many applications in grid energy storage for batteries each battery technology is more can be more suited to different applications but we're seeing for longer duration now uh, the chinese government plan to fill that hole so that's 10 hours and above let's say or even mm. above eight with uh, our opening opportunity for sodium and sodium ion there's a number of sodium ion gigafactory announcements in the last three months, which, which that is soil has been broken, foundations have been laid. So we expect those actually to come online in the next number of years and, and find roles in China, which will be the test bed for sodium ion. But yeah, there's a number of technologies. So, uh, so I've got yeah. a question for you on, on sodium iron. And, and, and first of all, I'll give a plug to vanadium as a, a, as a long duration technology. I, I was going to go there. Okay, okay yeah, good. Right, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll wait for you to go there. But just yeah. on sodium iron, uh, one of the core sort of constituents for sodium iron is, is manufactured from cyanide. And of course, the core raw material for cyanide is natural gas. 
do we think that that could potentially derail the sodium the sodium ion rollout? Well, there's a number of uh, sodium ion chemistries, right? But and cathode materials, the ones that you know, there's you got Prussian blue. There's a number. Prussian blue, one of the raw materials is cyanide. It's um, I can't remember which cyanide it is. It's not sodium. Uh, I think it might be sodium cyanide. So really, my concern, and this has always been the concern with with sodium ion, once you actually ramp up the supply chain, is there actually going to be enough capacity in the raw material supply chain to support a large volume commercial rollout? Of yes. sodium ion, because that's exactly what we found with lithium. You know, it was yeah, fine yeah. when you were, when you were using small tonnages of, of batteries, but once you go big on on the technology and you have to roll out, you know, multiple gigafactories with this, yeah. is the is the supply chain actually going to be strong enough to support that? I don't think affiliations with the petrochemical industry is enough to derail it because lithium is already tightly bound in certain components. The supply chain isn't there, for example, on the anode side, we use a, a hard carbon rather than graphite. Um, so that at a mass large scale is, is to date is not available, lesser extent in China. Um, because China is, uh, as you well know, uh, well aware, dominate the graphite industry and, and to a certain extent the carbon industry. And that is not really available in, in an ex-China supply chain. So yeah, there's going to be there's going to be problems. The gigafactory announcements for uh, sodium are more a one gigawatt hour, two gigawatt hour kind of test. <laughs> well, that's fine. We take that in the new technology. I mean, the vanadium yeah. guys would be would be absolutely screaming for that. <laughs> yeah, and as you just mentioned, flow batteries. You know, so China just released a um, working document for the energy storage industry going forward, and in that they mandated. NMC will, will not be used, uh, our uh, oxides, layered oxide materials, or sodium sulfur. Took a bit of a turn against sodium sulfur, which is still, which is growing industry in the electrical chemical storage, uh, coming out of uh, uh, a lot of work done in, in Japan. There was one fire in 2011 uh, with a sodium sulfur facility that has derailed that technology in China, but uh, we, see, uh, we see a growth in the US and, and, and Europe in sodium sulfur. So that will they'll find roads. There's a number of merging technologies that look quite quite good, but uh, lithium iron phosphate is the material du jour. It's in demand. It's got a lot of the characteristics that are quite suitable for energy storage. But in the US, the market's not 100% LFP yet. Uh, you know, still actually demand for NMC energy storage products. There, LG Chem is a big supplier of energy storage systems and uh, they primarily use nmc in, in their in, in their systems you want to talk about the is there a big contagion risk from a sebastian in china so yep. Uh, yep. this comes from sebastian in china do we see a big contagion risk from the property market to the car market if the market was affected would you expect any v sales to fare better than the market or this comes down to sort of government focus so there's no doubt that we're seeing, you know, a slowdown in the property market in China, and that is impacting the consumer. It has impacted the Chinese consumer over the last several months, up to a year. And the question is really, well, is that going to come forward into the Chinese consumer beyond that? Now, we have seen actually subsidies being announced by the Chinese government in the uh, passenger vehicle market, so not specifically in the EV market. But that has supported ICE sales 
in the last month or so. So that has been successful. And, you know, we're seeing pretty bloody robust growth in in EV sales at the moment. Um, I mean, the big question is if we see more weakness in the property market. But I think I've looked at China for many years, nearly 20 years now, and the Chinese government will generally act before we, we see whole scale say failures. So I don't really expect a huge contagion risk. I think that the Chinese consumer is a little bit weaker at the moment. I think that you know China has moved away from being a, a fixed asset investment led economy into more of a consumption economy as as they have wanted. But obviously we have seen this weakness in the Chinese consumer off the back of the property crisis and also uh, increasingly off the back of the high energy price environment at the moment. So do I expect passenger vehicle sales to growth to slow? Yes, absolutely. But I still expect NEV sales to outperform passenger vehicle sales within that. I don't really see a situation where it would be politically acceptable for the Chinese government for EV sales growth to turn negative at any point. So generally what you see in China is you see a couple of years of really strong sales, and then you see a couple of years of of weaker sales while things bed in. I wouldn't be surprised to see a couple of years of weaker sales growth now after what have been a couple of years of really standout sales growth. Agree, it makes sense. I think it will be insulated to a certain extent from what's going on in the property market. Okay, so uh, a question now from um, from Peter Parsons, and, and Cormac may very well shoot me for this one, but uh, I'm going to jump in anyway. So China is, is looking to uh, extract lithium from lipidolite uh, using a roasting process that results in, well, he says 20 kilograms of waste for every kilogram of lithium. I think it's actually a little bit less, but it depends very much on the the lithium grade, it's not, I think it's closer to about 10 to 15 kilograms, but it's still quite a lot of waste. An Australian company has a, has a low temperature hydromet process that uh, targets lipidolite ore bodies as well. But what he's saying is, does, um, does lithium from lipidolite and other pegmatite micas have a future or is it likely to be swamped by spodumene and brine projects? So maybe I'll answer the second part of the question, but what do you know about the Chinese sort of lipidolite industry? The lipidolite industry in China is propping up the domestic lithium production in China, 2022, 2021 as well, I believe. Lipidolite projects in China are are, uh, a little bit easier to bring to market. So they have brines, they have spodumene and lipidolite. Brines mostly in upper, uh, in towards the, uh, in the west where it's high altitudes, very difficult to, uh, it's not equivalent to sailor projects in Latin America. They snow, the weather issues. The spodumene projects are also, uh, in terms of project development, it's a little uh, more difficult to get licensing, passing environmental issues, uh, and the projects have got long lead times. For for lipidolite in China, they have very short lead times, mostly based in the Yuchun province. They can get these projects to production in under two years. They're very favorable. Province government's very favorable to um, lipidolite mining. They're involved in some of the mining projects, and um, they have as they claim a breakthrough sulfate roasting uh, process. 
And I agree with you, man. I think the waste is somewhere around 15, 16 tons, a little less than the 20, 20 tons per ton uh, uh, lithium is, uh, I think, the old process, which more or less the old Chinese process that made it uneconomical to uh, uh, to mine lipidolite. But China is developing lipidolite for domestic purposes. It's the resource they can develop the quickest at the moment. It's a larger resource than the spodumene. And, mm. um, and uh, yeah, so great government backing towards it. They claim they have the breakthrough technology. And we see the lipidolite lithium growing each quarter in terms of uh, capacity. So um, I'd just weigh in there and say, I think at this stage, we don't know how much of the lithium produced from the lipidolite process is battery grade material. And certainly one of the pushbacks I've heard of the lithium that's produced in China is that maybe only 50 to 60% of it is true battery grade material, which means the rest of it needs to go for reprocessing. And at the moment, there isn't the conversion capacity effectively to reprocess that. So I think that's one of the one of the pushbacks on the lipid line. But the second question, is it going to have a future? Definitely. And I, I and I, I think, you know, is it going to be swamped by spodumene or brine projects? I'm sure there's a pun in there, but um, brine projects, definitely not, because there just are not enough brine projects going around, certainly salar, high-grade salar brines in Latin America, very few. And um, yes, fine, if DLE gets off, there'll be more brine projects. But again, there aren't an awful lot of brine projects around. Spodumene is much easier to find. I mean, there's a lot of spodumene in Western Australia. There's lots of spodumene in Eastern Canada, in Brazil. There are some assets in Africa or in Europe. So there is lots of spodumene around. But obviously, you know, with spodumene, you are limited in terms of where you put your converting facilities. And then obviously your converting facilities have to be close to power lines, et cetera, because it's a high temperature process. It's not enough to actually have the mineral. You've got to have the infrastructure in place to build the conversion capacity as well. So my feeling is that there is a future for what we call non-vanilla technologies out there. And, and you know, non-vanilla technologies include low-grade brines. They include sedimentary lithium, so lithium clay, perhaps in the US, um, in Mexico. And they also include other hard rock non-spodumene sources of, of, of lithium like lipidolite and potentially other minerals like zinaldite. I do expect lipidolite projects to have a future both within China and outside. There's some very interesting lipidolite projects outside China as well. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I agree with the sentiment there. The brine is only going to scale with DLE. There's not many of the SQM type uh, sailor projects, if any. The good brine sailor uh, projects have already been taken and developed. Everything else is little less yeah. in terms of lithium content. Okay, another question here, one for Cormac, I suppose. So we had a, a, a couple of questions sort of similar to this, highlighting that, that people are, are driving around uh, relatively old ICE vehicles and asking how will battery electric vehicles tot up you know, when they get to be 15 years old, 20 years old in terms of, of running costs and battery performance. Yeah, uh, thanks for that, Matt. Well, then we don't <laughs> that was a hospital pass, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, uh, well, we don't have many 16-year-old BEVs to draw 
on, but we do have a lot of 97 Toyota um, Priuses, sorry, they're still going on the road. Uh, yeah, they're going uh, almost 25 years, obviously not with lithium ion, but we, the 2010, 2012 Tesla Model uh, Xs are still, or sorry, Model Ss in great, good, great condition. A lot of the packs are still above 85% of original capacity. Wow. So yeah, um, Nissan Leafs, for the early Nissan Leafs have shown, uh, a lot of studies have come out in the Nissan Leafs and the early ones are coming up on 20 years. Packs in phenomenal condition. Again, you know, car bodies obviously have issues, interior, exterior. Electric motors, uh, though, aren't as robust in the long term uh, compared to the, the battery systems. And um, I guess as electric motors improve, uh, I think uh, one of the questions is how would the EV look in 2038? I think it'll pretty it'll look pretty, a 16 year old BV in uh, 2038 will look pretty similar to. Uh, the battery pack, anyway, will be uh, pretty similar to the day you bought it, maybe down 10, 15% on original capacity as we move forward with the uh, battery technology. And I suppose the other thing that's that's very important about sort of electric vehicles is, the you know, within the drivetrain, they're much less complex. I mean, you don't have a gearbox, so, you, you know, you're not, not looking to replace the gearbox as it, as it wears out. And there's a lot more moving parts in an ICE than, than there are in an EV with the possible exception of the electric motor, which might need to, or, or various electric motors, which might need to be replaced, you might find you're pleasantly surprised in terms of the amount of uh, maintenance that you need to do to your electric vehicle. Yeah, a lot of brake pad changing, I believe, tire rotation. I think we're going to be surprised how durable BEVs are. In you know, So we're looking to get second life batteries into battery energy storage systems for the grid, but I just... When the time comes and your car is 15 years old, but it still has 80, 85% original capacity, uh, you can be tempted to sell, uh, sell that or hold on to it because uh, you only need 40 miles for your daily commute and people have 20-year-old cars, I'm sure. Okay, your turn. So you've got a question that's on everybody's mind. Everybody I speak to in the battery industry, lithium prices. So we have a question in. As lithium prices remain high and ongoing shortages become more evident with won't all stakeholders be incentivized to accelerate approvals and mine developments to speed up the path to market for new mines? Won't this help the gap between demand and supply later in the decade, particularly spodumene in Australia and Africa? Well, my answer to that question is, you would think so, wouldn't you? But so far, it hasn't happened. I mean, that this comes back to this point about planning red tape that we talked about earlier in the call and you know, the fact that we've been banging away on uh, the inability of the mining industry, mining part of the industry to raise capital, you know, over the last three years, it's been blatantly obvious to, to everybody in the industry that we're going to have a, a supply demand imbalance. But we haven't really had, the mining industry really hasn't had the ability to raise capital. And, uh, you know, this is very atypical for me in a cycle. Now, I've been a, an equity analyst for 20 odd years. I've been a commodity analyst over all of that time. And generally in a cycle, the industry will, will react very quickly. And other people outside the industry who are likely to need the product will react very quickly to raise capital for new projects. We just haven't seen that in this cycle. And I think two things are very much uh, a focus here. First of all, this issue that well, maybe three things. First of all, this issue of ESG. And I think it's difficult to underestimate how much ESG impacts the mining industry at the moment. A lot of 
you know, generalist financial investors who previously would have been invested in mining equities, mining debt, just will not touch the area because of the rise of ESG investment. So, you know, there's a lot of generalist capital out there that's not accessible to the mining industry. The second issue is this issue of capital capacity that we highlighted in in last month's Boundary Materials Review. And the issue really is that it's very difficult for the existing lithium sector, the battery raw material sector, to access capital because the companies that are in this sector are 90% small cap development and exploration companies. And even the large companies in the sector, I mean, particularly in the lithium space, they're not big enough to access enough development capital, which brings us back to the view that really the capital needs to come in from outside the battery raw materials industry. And we're just not seeing that capital. I've talked many times on the podcast in Battery Materials Review over the last two to three years about how the downstream part of the industry is raising funds really easily, eight to 10 times the rate of the upstream. And we're just not seeing those funds from the auto companies coming into the raw materials industry. And, you know, at the end of the day, it makes sense for the auto companies to to do this, to make capital available for the raw materials industry, but they're not doing it. And that's really the biggest, the biggest issue here. So yes, the answer to the question is yes, in a normal cycle, we would expect to see a lot of capital fly into the industry. But at the moment, we're not seeing enough capital flying into the industry. Yeah, definitely over-invested on one end. It's a, if, you, if it was a seesaw, the, the balance would be uh, overwhelming on, on one particular end on the uh, downstream. At the end of that question is quite interesting. I just uh, read recently in China, one of the sentiments in the lithium industry is now, maybe you can address it, Matt. If you don't have a lithium project in Australia, this is translated from Chinese. Uh, if you don't have a, tra- a lithium project in Australia, don't worry, you can go to Africa. Really big momentum between Chinese lithium producers and, and projects in Africa. Are you seeing the same? Well, yes. Yes and no. We've obviously got the success stories like Ganfeng coming in for um, Leo Lithium, Mali Lithium's um, project in Mali. But then obviously, we've also got the issues which are a little bit less healthy, for instance, where you've um, you've had this huge uh, free-for-all over um, AVZ Minerals Monono project in DRC, where the, you know, the, the, the development profile has been completely muddled up because two Chinese companies are effectively fighting over the asset. So yes and no. I mean, Africa's always been a go-to area for Chinese investment. They've always done very well in Africa. African countries are gagging for for investment in in raw materials in in their countries, uh, in infrastructure, and obviously the Chinese are, are very good at sort of putting raw material investments alongside infrastructure investments. So I think that you, you know that that is opening up, and it's particularly opening up in the last couple of years because the Chinese have been blocked from investing at the project level in Australian assets, so they can sign up offtake agreements. Yeah, they can't invest in the project level at Australian assets. And I think since that that tap's been turned off, China obviously has had to look elsewhere. And two areas it's focusing on, first of all, Argentina for the brine projects, and secondly, Africa for the, for the hard rock projects. 
EU and US can follow follow suit? Is that possible? Well, for, for me, I don't think Africa is as politically acceptable for the EU and the US, particularly from an, from an ESG standpoint. But I think that there are parts of Africa that are more acceptable than others. But I also think that, uh, you know, the EU and the US should be looking at other places. So for instance, the US should definitely be looking at Canada. I think the EU should definitely be looking at Canada, Brazil as well. And both Canada and Brazil benefit not only from having a lot of the resources, but having a lot of hydroelectric power production, which means that processing is much, much cleaner than it is mining stuff and taking it to China for processing. So I think if I were the EU and the US, I'd be looking much closer to home. There is potential, there is a, a couple of, you know, coastal projects in Africa that I think are viable. But um, I, I would definitely be looking much more at, uh, at Brazil and Canada, where it ticks a lot of boxes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, makes sense for uh, the US especially. And Brazil is looking quite exciting for yeah. a number yeah. of raw materials. Okay, I think we will call it a day there. Thanks everybody who sent questions in. Please feel free to let us know if you've got any major questions going forward and we'll, um, we'll endeavor to answer them on the podcast. We'll call that the end of our 40th edition of our podcast. So I'll say thank you very much to Cormac. Well done, Matt. Congrats on, on the 40th. Glad to be part of it. Okay, and we'll talk to you next month, and and maybe we may catch up at the Fast Markets Conference if we uh, if we get the chance. Yeah, looking forward to it. Okay, cheers. Cheers. So that brings us to the end of our podcast for September. As always, you can get more detail on any of the topics we discussed in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find online at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.